the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Come Together San Diego, a new live local show on K-Praise designed to explore what unity in the body of Christ sounds like within our communities and beyond. Don't just listen to it. Be a part of it. Now, here's your host, Bible teacher, writer, broadcaster, and lover of God, Kaz Taylor. Well, hey, San Diego. Well, hey, California. Hey, USA. And hey, Israel and the world, get ready for a biblical and historical diagnosis of your spiritual health and uh, actually get a prescription for your full and complete healing. <laughs> I've got a friend on the line from calling from the East Coast right now. We're going to spend the entire two hours together. This is a man whom I've known for a long time, one of the most remarkable Bible historians. But wait, he also is just a, a regular historian, but uh, he is also a historian in of the USA and all points in between. Uh, Dr. Bill Federer of American Minute. Hello, Bill Federer. I love to harass him about his last name. What a great last name. Bill Federer. Hi. Hey, Kaz. Great to be with you. It's great to be with you. With you. So we're in San Diego. Where's Bill Federer today? Uh, in, I'm in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. In, in Pennsylvania. Yes, and you're ministering tomorrow, so you've been invited to minister at a church in Pennsylvania. Aren't you a little further south where you... Have your domicile? Right. We live in Fort Myers, Florida. Fort Myers, Florida. And my well, wife, our kids are growing. My wife wanted the warm weather. So. Yeah, well, understandable. Understandable. Probably no big complaint from you. Warm weather is nice. Yeah, well, as long as she's happy. All <laughs> <of> those things. <laughs> yeah, we know those phrases. Happy wife, happy life, and all those things like that. Bill Federer, I've been excited to visit with you because... I have been watching the calendar, watching the time clock, watching the world unfold, and a lot of stuff's been going on, and because you taught me to pay close attention to the things that are going on now in history and say, you know, these are not new things because history repeats itself, so let's delve back into things of the past and, uh, and, and glean some things of the present and learn some lessons that we don't uh, fail in in the immediate future. So in our entire show, Bill, I know your game because you love to talk about these things. We're going to talk about things, uh, uh, the the present day challenges in the world, but we're going to have you take uh, the oil dipstick and dip back into the Old Testament and the New Testament and say, and here's where that happened originally, and here's the lessons we need to learn, and here are here we are today heading into tomorrow, and boys and girls, it doesn't look like we've uh, learned those lessons so are you ready to take a whirlwind journey through the Bible history and through um, U.S. history, Bill Federer? Sure, yes. Looking okay. forward to it. You know, there, there's a scripture. I'm sure you use this. You may not quote it in the same version that I do. In Ecclesiastes one nine, it says, That which was, is, and that which is, is what shall be. In other words, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So uh, I'm sure one of the things that in, in, enthralls you about history is that you, when you see something happening, you say, I've seen this before, and here's the mistake that was made way back then. 
So can we talk, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, current uh, American political history, and then, uh, then let's uh, align that with uh, ha- things that happened back in American history in the past, and maybe even dig a little bit more deeply so we can learn lessons into the future. This impeachment thing is really bugging me, Bill. It's bugging me. But this is not something that's new to now. This impeachment mentality of uh, politicians has been alive and well and thriving in America for some time. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, uh, let's start with the, the big picture. And one of the books I did is on world history. It's called Who Was the King in America? And it's an overview of all of world history. People say history repeats itself. Yeah, but really human nature repeats oh, itself. That's good. That's good. <laughs> and uh, the only difference is, is uh, you know, technology uh, advancements allow you to kill more people and control more people. Um, but it's that same fallen nature of Cain, Kill, and Abel. Uh, but anyway, so the one book I did is called Who is the King in America? And I decided to go back to the beginning of the invention of writing. Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. Today, that's Iraq. Yes. And so uh, you, the, the, and you think of it, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist uh, on his Cosmos TV series, uh, had one episode where he was over in Iraq, and he said it was here around 5,000 years ago between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that we learned how to write. Uh-huh. So writing was invented around 5,000 years ago, around 3,300 B.C. And so you think of it, uh, that's not that long ago, right? If you, if you round it out 6,000 years, 6,000 years is just 60 people living 100 years each back to back. Wow. So we've all met someone who's lived 100 years, maybe a grandmother. We're talking 60 grandmothers, and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history. Right, we're around 2080, and you go back three or four thousand years BC. That's around five or six thousand years. Well, the question that I wanted to examine is: now that we have written records, let's look at them. What's the most common form of government? Well, let's see. We have Nimrod Tower of Babel, two thousand years of Egyptian pharaohs, uh, kings of Assyria and Babylon, and Cyrus of Persia, and five thousand years of Chinese emperors and Indian maharajas. It's kings. The most common form of government in world history is kings. And as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger and bigger and bigger. Again, because with military advancements, you can kill more people. So instead right. of Cain killing Abel with a rock, you're now using a bronze weapon or a iron weapon or a long phalanx spear or a curved scimitar sword or a stirrup riding horses or gunpowder. But the weapon changes, but as the human nature has not. And so, uh, so as the centuries go on, these kingdoms get bigger uh, until finally the king of England had the biggest. And the sun never set on the British Empire. He had 13 million square miles, a half a billion people, all of India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, and America. And America's founders decided they wanted to break away from this globalist one-world government. <laughs> and Listen, hang on for a second, Bill. Listen to what he, he just said because we're going to revisit this in another section. He, he, he said the people wanted to break away from this globalist point of view. I, I, we're going to be talking about that. I, I just had to forewarn people that you're going to hear these phrases that you're hearing today uh, that, that were maladies back then. So go ahead, Bill. Forgive me. And so America's founders decided to take the power of a king and flip it. And, 
and make it the, the people. So instead of top down ruled by a king, it's bottom up ruled by we the people. And uh, this is the, you know, I, I tell the whole story uh, in the book, but, you know, the pilgrims were coming across the ocean. They were going to land at Jamestown. They got caught in a storm. They're, they landed in Massachusetts, uh, and the captain of the boat says, everyone off the boat. And they said, well, we have a question. Who's going to be in charge? There's no king-appointed person on our boat. They do something unique. They give themselves the authority to start a government. Yes. called the Mayflower Compact, which says, we, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves into a civil body politic to enact just and equal laws, and we'll submit to them. Yes. This was revolutionary. It was a it was a polarity change in the flow of power. Bill, let me inter- can I ask you a question here? Can I ask you a question here? Forgive me for jumping in because uh, you, you when you get going, it's hard. I feel like I'm sticking my toe into the lawnmower, so forgive me when I do this. But one of the phrases you used there is that this government was formed with a key phrase that you use, and we're going to be revisiting this as well. It said, you said, in the presence of God. A lot, a lot of times people want to self-govern, but they disallow God in the equation and tremendous amount of problems with that. But America was different, wasn't it? Now I'm going to return the stage to you, Bill Federer. We've got about two minutes left in this segment, and then we'll continue this discussion to the next segment. Bill Federer. Well, you you bring up a very important point. And so the pilgrims were part of the Protestant Reformation movement that was based on this concept of covenant. And the Mayflower Compact, we covenant ourselves together. Now, what's a covenant? Well, it comes from ancient Israel. And it's this idea of people in agreement with each other, rights from God, accountable to God. Sort of like a triangle, right? Rights come from God, you're accountable to God, and you're going to take care of each other. Well, in the next century, covenant turned into social contract. And it was people in agreement with each other, uh, with or without God. If he's there, he's sort of distant. And then in the next century, it turned into the French Revolution and Marxism, and it was a social contract intentionally without God. Yes. And this makes the state God. And what the state giveth, the state can take it away it. And so Jean-Jacques Rousseau, father of the French Revolution, in his book, Social Contract, says, if the state says to an individual, it is expedient for the state that you should die, that individual should die. My, my. Because his life is a gift made conditionally by the state. Yes. So once you get rid of God, it makes the state God. Yes. And so you have, they call it socialism or communism. So Hitler was the head of the National Socialist Workers Party, and he decided to kill millions of people. Stalin was the head of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. He decided to kill millions of people. Pol Pot was the uh, head of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. He kills a third of his country. He said, to keep you is no benefit. To kill you is no loss. My, my. Bill in other Fetter? words, your life is only dependent on what you can contribute to the state. You don't have any rights from a creator. There you go. You know, we're, we're going to, can we visit this again in beginning the next segment? But you're, sure. you're hearing some things that Bill Federer is saying that are echoing in today's politics. You know, it's let, let the government take care of this. And if you don't align with what the government wants, you're in jeopardy. And uh, this is a dangerous thing that's going on here. We're going to bring it a little closer to home in the next segment because Bill's got the goods and he's ready to share it with us. We're visiting for this entire two hours with Bill Federer of American Minute. He's a wonderful historian on many, many counts. He's a, uh, a Bible historian, a U.S. historian, a world historian. He, and he also has, a, because he has Holy Spirit within him, 
he's able to assimilate the things that happened back then with the things that happened yesterday into the things that are happening today. So, Bill Federer, stay with us because we've just launched this ship and we're uh, just about ready to set sail. My friends, thank you for joining us this segment, and Bill Federer and I will be right back. This is Come Together San Diego, the new live local show on FM 106.1 and AM 1210. K-Praise. More Come Together San Diego is just moments away. Now, more of Come Together San Diego on K-Praise. Here's Cass Taylor. And guess what? I'm back with a very exciting topic. We're talking about history uh, yesterday, today, and forever. The history is released not only to the United States, but also world history, but also uh, history in Israel, but also history past with history present and what we need to look forward to or prepare for in history future. Bill Federer is my co-host for this entire two hours. Bill, I think we uh, started uh, started our voyage very effectively, and I'm ready to sail into some other things. But before we do, can you give people an idea how they can find out more about Bill Federer and American Minute and some of the multitude of books that you've written? Just under a million books, is that right? Am I reading this right? I'm kidding. Right, yes. Um, uh, my website is AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com, and have a toll-free number, 888-USA-WORD, 888-USA-WORD. Uh, I sent a free daily history email, something that happened on each state in history, uh, always highlighting our Christian values, and then um, have about 20 different books. The one I mentioned already is called Who is the King in America? But did another book on the history of Santa Claus, another one on the history of, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, another one on... um, you know, the history of separation of church and state. And income tax. I mean, who writes books on income tax? What an what a informative book that was about uh, the, the tax system. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Prior to uh, Abraham Lincoln, there was no income tax. Yes. Uh, Amazing. So the federal government was paid for through tariffs and excise taxes, but no income tax. And um, anyway. You, uh, you'll love this, my friend. Wilson pushed through a, a 1% tax. Yes, but that's a whole other story. It's a whole other story. And my listening friend, uh, Bill gave us some key words that I want to jump into in this segment. And the key words that he used was were socialism and communism. You know, socialism and communism they they sound when the purveyors of socialism and the purveyors of communism explain it. It sounds pretty enticing. What it means is uh, everybody gets to share the wealth, uh, but that doesn't work. When you strip away the uh, puffery, and, and, and it causes many, many, many societies to fail. So in the United States right now, many people that are running for the president of the United States embrace the socialism mantra. So explain to me how socialism sounds so good at the beginning and where it can deteriorate, and then we'll deal not only with the today things, but the, some history paths to set the stage for what you want to say, Bill Federer. Right. So we go from covenant to social contract with God to social contract without God, yes. which makes the state God. And um, one of the quotes from Hegel, uh, now Napoleon, he conquers Europe, including a German co- kingdom called Prussia. 
And the king of Prussia says, well, we can't let that happen again. We need to strengthen the state. And so he got a philosopher named Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. And Hegel taught, quote, the state is God walking on earth, unquote. Another one, quote, we must worship the state, unquote. Another Hegel quote, all the worth which the human being possesses, he possesses only through the state. Um, And so you don't have any rights, any worth. Uh, You see, with the Judeo-Christian model, you have rights from a creator, irregardless of whether or not you can contribute to the state. The, you know, socialist model is you only have worth if you can contribute to the state. Yes. And actually what happens once you have God, then the state's purpose is to guarantee your God-given rights. If there is no God, then your purpose is to guarantee the state's rights. You're, you exist for the state. Another quote from Hegel. The state recognizes no authority but its own. It acknowledges no abstract rules of good and bad. What's he talking about? Uh, the Bible. There's no good or bad. There's no God. There's no, all it is, is power. The state has power. And you contribute to the state's power, you're worth something. And if you challenge the state's power, you're dead. So who was a member of the young Hegelians at the University of Berlin? But Karl Marx. My, my. And also influenced by Hegel was Hitler and Stalin. And so um, uh, every communist and socialist country is a dictatorship. Yes. Right? Every one of them, Stalin, Popot, Ho Chi Minh, Castro, Mao Zedong, they say that everybody owns everything equally, but in practice, it never happens. You have a deep state elite class that is distributing who gets what, and then some power broker political boss that ends up becoming at the top of the power of the deep state class, Yes, and he's the dictator. Yes, but, so, but, but so, the, the, the picture here is, it sounds good, social... Socialism, you know, everybody share, shares in the wealth, and uh, that sounds good. But then you have the actual governance of this are a few people, and they're not accessible by, you know, what we have in the United States. Voters determine uh, the government. But uh, when you have a socialistic mindset, then the the whole issue of us having our freedom to say we like this and don't like that, you mentioned the term deep state. It's been handed over to an entity that is not uh, – susceptible to the population saying, whoa, we don't like that. So explain where we are right now as it re- regards to socialism and maybe the, the, the enticement that politicians see in uh, proclaiming this, but also the soon appearing dangers when you endeavor in this. There are countries right now, are, are there any countries right now, Bill, that have success, successful socialistic uh, uh, governments? Um, they, they may call themselves that, you know, socialist, but they, it's interesting. Almost all of the quote unquote socialist countries of Europe have Royal families and nobilities. Uh-huh. They have an elite ruling class and they're the ones that call the shots. The EU is nothing but a big pyramid. You have this small group of EU people that make all the decisions and you have multi-million dollar lobbyists that were filling up 
you know, Belgium and Brussels to try to lobby those few group of people that make all the decisions. And then you have everybody else that's subject to the decisions. So I ask people, do you want to keep your job? Yeah. Uh, What if somebody's threatening your job? Uh, Are they a good person or a bad person? Well, if they're threatening my job, they're a bad person. Okay. So if everybody that works for the company wants to keep their job, they sort of want to keep the company in business. What if you have a whole lot of people working for the government? Their, their whole motivation becomes, I want the government to get bigger. Bigger, yes. I want to keep my government job. And anybody that threatens my government job, that wants to cut the size of government, they are the enemy. And wow. I'm going to do what I can to undercut them, leak stuff to the media, uh, audit and tax, use the power of government. And, and so what happens is the same motivation that you have to keep your job, that's the deep state that are the people that are working for the government. And they all want this big blob to get bigger. Yes. Um, and uh, they will do, they don't have any right or wrong. Right is keeping your job. Wrong is losing, losing your, your job. job. My, my. And so politicians, they want to stay in their political office. And so they'll use, so most most politicians go in on a shoestring, and after they're there a couple of years, they're, they're millionaires. Yeah, they're, they're, they leave they as millionaires. That? Yes. They're yes. using the system to benefit themselves, and they funneled favors to those. So you think of it as a pyramid. And so the top of the pyramid, you have a king, a dictator, a tyrant, a socialist communist leader, a Stalin, Pol Pot, Castro. And then they, the communist party members are the new royalty. Yeah. The deep state elite, they're the new royalty. And then the people are the subjects. Bill, let's so talk you, Let's talk about this in the next segment. We're out of time in this segment. But I want you to be pondering this because I want you to take what you just said about socialism and the transition into communism. I want you to take that and overlay that in America right now. And I want you to overlay the promises that are being made in light of this. It could be health care. It could be any one of a number of different things. Um, and... Uh, overlay that into today and show us where that logic uh, erroneously takes us. Would you be so kind to do that in the next segment, Bill? Sure. Okay, it's a pleasure. Bill Federer, I guess you know we're going to be getting into some hefty stuff, and these are things that you view on the TV every day, and you go, yeah, but I can't get the connection between what they're talking about from a socialism and what the danger of socialism is. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next segment. But uh, Bill Fetter is going to give us some examples of past and uh, the the dangers that are going along with that. When Bill Federer and I come right back. You're listening to Come Together San Diego, the new live local show on FM 106.1 and AM 1210. K-Praise. Don't just listen to it. Be a part of it at 866-577-2473. You're just moments away from more Come Together San Diego on K-Praise. Now, more of Come Together San Diego, the new live local show on K-Praise. Here's Cass Taylor. And ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we have the Bill Federer of American Minute with us for the entire two hours. We've just broached the topic of socialism versus capitalism or socialism versus uh, the American form of government, which is being threatened big time by one 
political party in particular these days. And uh, let's conclude that portion. And then I want to talk, Bill, a little bit about the whole one world mentality, because that's the, that's the socialist mantra. Let's all be one. And uh, we get to be the boss and you get to be our subservience. <laughs> but uh, it'll all work out because we have your best interest in mind. <laughs> so that's, that's really the danger here of socialism, especially in the face of of capitalism, and here we have just this president of the United States who says, "We're uh, we make America great again. We don't worry as much about making other countries great again, which has been the the uh, mantra of of the United States for a long time. We have been the uh, provider for services and protection and everything else in the not only in the United States but countries throughout the United Nations, and things like that." And Trump says, "You know, we got to protect our own peeps." First, which is really, don't you think, Bill, this flies in the face of the one world mentality, the one world government. And um, why don't you speak to that? Because I think America is at a crossroads right here and we kind of have to hold our own because there is a tremendous value of national autonomy. Bill Federer. Well, one of the points that I'd like to throw out here at the beginning is God gives commands to five identifiable groups. The first one is individuals. The second is to families. The third is to employer-employee relationships. The fourth is to the church. And the fifth is to government. Now, among the commands given to individuals includes charity, taking care of the poor, visiting the prisoners, visiting the sick in the hospital, uh, giving a meal. There are no commands to the family to take care of the poor. The commands to the family are husbands, love your wives, children, submit to your parents. There's no commands for the employer or employee to take care of the poor. Those commands are employer, don't hold back the wages, and employee, give an honest day's work. There are commands for the church to take care of the poor. Yes. And historically, the church has. And they took care of the orphans and the widows. And over the centuries, they started hospitals. Hospitals were started by the church. In the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church, and then in America, all the different Christian denominations, uh, the church started schools. Uh, The whole university system was started by the Catholics in, in Europe. And most of the schools in America, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, they were all started by Christian groups. Uh, the, the churches uh, would take care of the orphans. Uh, they were the welfare system, right? All the way up until Lyndon Johnson's Great Society Welfare State in the 1960s, it was the church that was the welfare system for the poor immigrants. Uh, so the church historically took care of the poor. There are no commands for the government to take care of the poor. Wow. The commands to the government are the shortest. Yes. Protect, Protect the, the people. Punish the guilty. Yes, yes, yes. You know, Bill, one of the things that is just striking to me how you, you had a wonderful hierarchy there. You talked about individual responsibilities. Then you talked about family responsibilities. Then you talked about work and work environment responsibilities, church responsibilities, and government. And you say the, the, the least cumbersome of them all is government. Just protect the people. 
Done deal. And so, but what government wants to do is the government wants to be uh, number one, two, three, four, and five. And where does that leave us? And where does that leave God? I think that's where we are, don't you, Bill, in America? Right. And so the reason it's important to understand this is because Christians will see poor people and say, the poor should be taken care of. Let the government do it. Wait, wait just a second. Just because something needs to be done does not mean it's the government's job to do it. Yes, the poor need to be taken care of, but they need to be taken care of by individuals being generous. Yes. And the church. So the early church, when Christians got saved, they sold their property. They took the money to the feet of who? Pilate? The government? Here, Pilate, here's a little more money for the Roman Empire to spread around. No, they took the money to the feet of the apostles. They said, here, we're going to give the money to the church, and the church can take care of the poor. Why is this important? Because the church has a message that tells the poor, you can do this. We're with you. God is with you. We're going to help you get out of your poor situation and improve your life. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. We'll help you get an education, right? There's a personal accountability, and the people have a response of gratefulness. And then after they get out of their situation, they want to be have gratitude and give back. When the government is dispensing money to the poor, the Poor person views it as a debt that is owed to them. And so as a response, there is no gratefulness. And it becomes something that is um, uh, impersonal. Yes. You go to the government office, you fill out the form. They say they stamp it here and hand it back to you. There's no personal care. And as a matter of fact, there is developed an entire class of government bureaucracy that does not want the poor to stop being poor, because if they ever, if there ever were no poor, their government agency would not have a purpose for existing, and everyone would lose their jobs. My. So, ironically, as it seems, the government wants the poor to stay poor so they can have the power over the, to, to justify their existence. Would you say that this bill is? Uh, happening in the United States today, and the poor, the underprivileged, the, they may be uh, minorities, and the the people that really have a socialism bent want them to stay needy, because if they're not needy, then the need of the government goes away. If a person is embracing God and godliness and the church environment, then they're looking to a power that's well beyond the government and uh, God can intervene, but if uh, God is out of the picture, then government intervenes and we get into trouble. We've got about three minutes left in this segment, Bill. Uh, well, let's talk about this a little more, and then I want to get into expanding the topic of socialism and socialized medicine and see that where that has taken us and may take us if we don't pay attention to the danger signs. So let's talk just a little bit more about the government's desire to usurp the value of the church usurp the value of working environments, usurp the value of families, and usurp the value of individuals so that the government can reign supreme. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Bill? All right. So uh, one of the 
new books that my wife and I put together is called Miracles in American History, Volume 2, The Faith That Shaped the Nation. And there's a, a chapter in there on Booker T. Washington, who had been a slave during the Civil War. He's free. He walks 500 miles, goes to the, goes to the Hampton Institute, goes to Wayland Bible Seminary in Washington, D.C., uh, ends up coming back, speaking at a graduation, does such a good job. They offer him a position at the school. And then when somebody wants to start a school for freed slaves in Alabama, they get him to be the president. So he's the president of Tuskegee University. And he said, I don't want to teach people to get a job. I want to teach them to create jobs. Wow. And he said that the answer to the race problem is to become successful financially and then you, he created a, uh, it was called a Negro Chamber of Commerce. He created it before the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was created. Say that again. That, that, that's amazing. Say that again, Bill. That's amazing. So Booker T. Washington created a Negro Chamber of Commerce, which is the word they used back then, uh, 10 years before the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was created. My. In other words, he pioneered this example of, Look, we need to get financially, uh, climb the ladder, and then we'll get, get respected um, rather than do the W.E.B. Dubois thing of demanding reparations. And so um, uh, this idea of uh, becoming successful, and then Booker T. Washington was a Christian. He had, had Bible studies being taught at the school down there at Tuskegee, and uh, George Washington Carver was one of the Christian professors there. But it's this idea that uh, just because the, something needs to be done, it's not the government's job That's to do right. it. And just because we need to take care of the poor. Before, every immigrant that came to America, their extended family was their welfare system, their welfare net. They would come over and live with some uncle, right? Yes. And then the church was the welfare net. It wasn't the government's job to get in there. And now what happens is, if the person is receiving money from a church, there is a personal relationship, there's prayer, there's accountability, we're checking up on you and your kids, and then the person feels that somebody loves me, and then they feel a gratefulness afterwards. If they're receiving money from the government and they're not doing anything to get the money, it hurts their self-esteem, and they begin to feel worthless that they're just there getting money. And that feeling of worthlessness is a negative feeling. Yes. And they want to channel that negative response somewhere. So they channel the negative response toward the, in the group that's making them feel worthless. The government, the very people that are giving them the money, they end up hating. They end up hating the very hand that's giving them money if it's coming from a impersonal government. Yes. And so... The Bible talks all about charity, but when but the charity, not from, not money, from the government. It's, it's, yes. Charity from the church, charity from the individual believers. When the government's involved. It's not charity. Yeah. It's theft from ha, the people ha, ha. that my, they my. take the money from. And then it's given to, it, and it turns into a vote getting machine where uh, Lyndon Johnson's great society welfare state, it, it ended up turning into get as many people to sign up for government benefits as possible. And they'll always vote for the candidate that promises to continue. The yes, benefit. yes. Bill Federer, we're running out of time in this segment, but uh, I think we, there's one more aspect of this that we want to deal with in this hour. We talked about socialism and the whole idea of government want to usurp their own control and minimize or eliminate 
uh, church involvement, family involvement, work involvement, and, and individual involvement. But I want you to talk about in the next segment how all this relates to not only socialism, but socialized medicine. That's the thing we're in, is in our face right now, socialized medicine. And the same ramifications that you uh, dealt with with socialism generally has more insipid uh, roots in uh, socialized medicine as well. So in the next segment, could we talk a little bit about that? Sure. Okay, well, Bill never says no because <laughs> he knows everything. <laughs> Bill Fetter and I will be right back. More Come Together San Diego with Kaz Taylor is next. FM 106.1 and AM 1210. K-Praise. Come Together San Diego with Cass Taylor, FM 106.1 and AM 1210, K-Praise. I am back with uh, historian Bill Federer of American Minute. He's a remarkable historian, but not only of uh, U.S. history, not only of uh, world history, but also Middle East history. You, you, in fact, he knows stuff. And uh, he's seen the sequential events that happen in, in uh, you know, even Mesopotamian days. He sees, has seen those things, and he's seen them replay themselves uh, into the Middle Ages time frames, and he's seen them replay themselves even into uh, present-day times. And there are danger signs, but because we don't really steep ourselves in past history, we go, oh, this sounds good. And it's just like the people back in the day that said, oh, this sounds good. So let's talk a little bit about Bill Fetter. Let's talk a little bit about the we talked about socialism. Let's talk about socialized medicine. Where does that play into things, and uh, how, what do we need to be aware of, and what's the better way to solve that? Because you know, you know, uh, if when the government does this, you can keep, you know, you can keep your plan, and you can keep your, uh, um, you know, you can keep your doctor. So why should you worry about that? Well, those are fibs, aren't they? Well, they are, and. One of the things that I bring out is the history of healthcare, and believe it or not, it was the church. So there were some ancient cultures that had medical practices, but they were mixed with superstition, and they were only for the wealthy. Uh, you know, whether it's you know the Egyptians believed in a type of eternal life, but it was only for the pharaoh. The common people didn't get that. Right. Um, you know, it was the wealthy Greeks that would go to their you know, healthcare people, but all they would, you know, have put them to sleep with some drug and have snakes crawl across them. But, but the healthcare for the poor is rooted in Christianity. Uh, and you can look back, it was the Syrian church that pioneered medical care. Syria was the first country to become completely Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul, there's more ancient Christian writing in the Syrian language of Syriac than any other language other than Greek and Latin. Anyway, so the Syrian church pioneered medical care, and, um, and then in the West, the Byzantine Empire. They had a medical school in Nisibis, N-I-S-I-B-I-S, founded in the 4th century as the world's first university, and it was a Christian center of learning, it was located in, in modern-day Turkey, but way back then it was part of the Byzantine Empire. Assyrian Christians, there was a family of the book issue family, and they had nine generations of physicians, and they founded a medical academy in Gundishapur in present-day Iran, uh, and it existed from the 5th century to the 9th century. 
a Syrian Christian, um, you know, had an ophthalmology book, a guy named Hunyan Ibn Ishaq in 950 AD. Uh, but then you look in the West and you had uh, the Catholic Church in Italy start a medical school. And uh, so Jesus says, I was sick and you visited me. Whatever you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And then he tells the parable. The Samaritan traveling, saw an injured person, took him to an inn, bound up his wounds, oil and wine, and then, you know, gave some denarii and told the innkeeper, look after him. When I return, I'll give you some more. And so in the fourth century, you had a St. Jerome uh, helped a woman get saved named Fabiola, and she built a hospital in Rome to care for the poor. Uh, there was a St. Basil who distributed poor in Caesarea and built a poorhouse, a hospice, and a hospital. Uh, sort of interesting, the word hosp, H-O-S-P, yes. is Latin for traveler. And they would go on pilgrimages and arrive at a church worn out, and so the church would have an infirmary to take care of the uh, traveler that needs to recuperate. So, Bill, how, how did they so, pay? How did they pay for? It? Had the travelers pay for this, or was this charity? Right, and so the Christians had orders of people, nuns and monks who dedicated their life to take care of the poor, so they did it for free. Ah. And so this continued through the centuries. These orders of nuns through the Middle Ages, they did it for free. They did it under Christ. And so much so that the nun hat turned into the nurse's cap. Oh, my. Oh, that's right. I can see that. And so the word host for traveler is where we get the word hospitality and hospital and host and hostel and hotel that comes from this word for traveler. And, um, and so the, uh, the Benedictine order in the sixth century, they established monasteries with infirmaries. Um, and then when the Muslims began to attack them, they would have knights hospitaller. And these were knights that would go guard the hospitals. And then the Benedictine Monastery in Salerno, Italy, had the oldest medical school in the Western Hemisphere. And um, then Charlemagne decreed that hospitals that had fallen into disrepair should be restored. 1300s, bubonic plague, or the Black Death. 75 million people die. Crops were left standing in the field because no one was alive to harvest them. So a bunch of Catholic Christian men called the Election Brothers would collect the, the dead bodies and give them a Christian burial. And uh, and then some of them weren't dying yet, and so they would take care of them, sort of a hospice, you know, take care of them while they're dying, and then some would begin to recover, and then they would take care of them while they recovered, and that turned into hospitals. But then in 660 uh, AD, you have the, the most famous hospital in Europe called Hotel de You, which means the Hospital of God in Paris. And there's a, a bunch of Catholic sisters uh, Sisters of Charity, and for the next thousand years, they uh, would have these orders of nuns that would take care of sick people. Yes, and um, uh, and they would also uh, take care of the, the the Muslims would capture ships and put people into slavery in North Africa. So there was a, a Catholic order called Trinitarians who would collect alms and donations and then go under a white flag to North Africa to ransom one of your friends who was captured you know, from a ship or a Greek island or an Italian coast. So one of the people captured was Vincent de Paul, and he's oh made a slave in Tunisia. 
and he's finally ransomed back and he comes back to Europe and he decides to start an order to take care of the poor. St. Vincent. And it's called the Vincent de Paul Society. I love that. They still have hospitals and take care of the poor. Um, and, uh, and then by the 1700s, there are 6,000 sisters of charity. They have 426 hospitals that they're running across France and then across Europe. And, um, and then the French Revolution starts in a reign of terror. Yes. They break into the mother house of the Sisters of Charity, and they tell these nuns that they have to deny their faith or they'll kill them. And they don't deny their faith, and so they bring my, them out and chop their heads off. My, my. They round them up. It's, it's amazing that a secular government comes into hospitals started by Christians and Catholics and say, you have to give up your Christian faith and begin to embrace our secular pro-abortion uh, euthanasia you know, uh, agenda uh, because we're now taking over. And my, these, my. these nuns wouldn't. They would get killed. And after the French Revolution, they began to rebuild. And, um, and then they started coming to America. Yes. Now, we, right. we're going we're to continue this story in the next segment because we're running out of time in this segment. But this reminds me of a scripture that people quote partially in the book of Revelation. It says, and speaking of the enemy, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. So true Christianity, true faith has uh, has a willingness to go all the way with God and do God's stuff. It has to do with healing the sick and these signs shall follow them, laying hands on the sick and, and they shall recover. But we've kind of lost those things. And in today's Christianity, we go, yeah, uh, you know, uh, I, I have, uh, I, I believe in Jesus and uh, the, overcame him by the blood of the lamb. We believe in the blood of the lamb. We believe in the word of the testimony. Don't talk about the giving up your life. Uh, we, we don't want to go there. But the whole package of a Christian faith is whatever God wants you to do and impact others with, we do. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next segments. It's getting exciting, my listening friend. I hope Bill, he always opens my eyes when we talk about different things in history. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, socialized medicine and uh, God's plan for medicine, but we're also going to talk about other things like globalism versus national uh, independence, and we're going to talk about things like that. So, Bill Federer, we've only got half the show done. we got a whole half to go. I know your game. and uh, Are you still awake back on the East Coast, Bill Federer? Yes, yes. And, uh, and if anybody's uh, interested, uh, I have a website, AmericanMinute.com, and I send out emails and what I'm talking about about the hospitals is in one of the emails um, that I sent out. There's an archive where you can look them all up. Very good. And the, the and the website again, how they can find that is uh, AmericanMinute.com. AmericanMinute.com. I, things are heating up, my friend. Your the scales are falling from our eyes as Bill Federer is the scale remover <laughs> through Holy Spirit. Bill Federer and I will be right back. This is Come Together San Diego, the new live local show on FM 106.1 and AM 1210. K-Praise. More Come Together San Diego is just moments away. Come Together San Diego with Cash Taylor on FM 106.1 and AM 1210. K-Praise. I'll tell the world, world, world. And I am back with Bill Federer. He's not only a U.S. historian, uh, he's not only a Middle East historian, he's a world historian. And I'm going to change the, the ground rules a little bit, Bill Federer. Good to have you with me on the second hour, by the way. Oh, great to be with you. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So we've talked quite a bit now about uh, socialism, 
versus uh, non-socialism, the, the American form of government, and how that is being ripped away. And uh, tied to that is the, the topic of globalism versus national pride or national independence. I want to broaden the, the tent pegs here, Bill Federer, and let's talk about United States, and then do an overlay of Israel over the United States when it comes to uh, globalism versus national pride. Because what I'm seeing in uh, the United States by virtue of, you know, the make one world, the globalism thing, take down the walls, and everybody has the free rights to all health care and everything else. Uh, What I'm seeing here in the United States, I'm seeing happening in Israel as well, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's God saying, "You guys have a heart of Judean, uh, you know, Judean uh, uh, Christian, Judeo-Christian perspective, and I, I honor that." But it's being stolen away from you, and the same things that are happening in the United States are happening in Israel, or you could say the same things that are happening in Israel are happening in the United States. You want to draw a parallel to that a little bit more, Bill, and maybe even go into past history even before that, because it's amazing to me, and the mistakes that were made, you know, you can go back to Israel before the first temple was destroyed, or before the second temple was destroyed, and these same mechanisms were in place and are threatening to be in place again, the the elections and everything else. I'm going to hand the ball to you, Bill Federer, so draw me the parallel between United States and Israel as it relates to global mentality versus national pride and independence. Right, um, definitely. Now, I, on the healthcare issue, I do have information on how Hitler came to power promising socialized medicine, and then their economy cratered, and they needed to cut useless expenses, like keeping alive retarded, insane, epileptic people. They called them Labens Unzertes Leben, life and worthy of life. And then they got rid of the convicts in prison. Why should we have to pay to keep, feed this criminal? And then they got rid of the elderly. They My. lived their lives in their these nursing homes. Nobody even misses them. They're not going to miss being alive. Uh, and then they finally decided that they wanted to clean the human gene pool of inferior races and by their twisted mentality. They included Jews and gypsies and other, and they killed millions of them. And so we read the terrible story of the Holocaust and say, how could something like that happen? Easy. It started with socialized medicine. My, it started my. With the government paying for everybody's health care, and then the government deciding it needs to cut expenses. And um, one of the quotes from uh, the um, uh, oh, C. Everett Coop um, was the Surgeon General in America, and he uh, talked about how it started gradually when they began to, you know, send the, the uh, insane and the epileptic to the gas chambers, and there was no outcry from the medical profession, and it was not far from there to Auschwitz. Well, so, Bill, how, how uh, long did, how long did it take for this slippery slide? You know, uh, you embraced the socialism values and all of a sudden a special socialized especially socialized medicine and certain things are taken from you but because you are not among those that they are targeting you go eh, that's okay but there there's sickle is cho- chopping off people all the way down and sooner or later it comes to uh you don't look like me so you're going away so how long does it take for that that uh, supernatural negative slide to happen are we talking about years are we talking about decades uh, or centuries? Yeah, yeah, yes to yeah, both? Less than a decade, yeah. So 
Hitler took power in 1933 and then immediately uh, began to, here's a, a, a Catholic, uh, this is a New York Times, 1933 article. It says, um, Nazi plan to kill incurables to end pain, German religious groups oppose move. The Ministry of Justice explaining the Nazi aims regarding the German penal code today announced its intention to authorize physicians to end the sufferings of the incurable patient. So it's under the guise of ending the sufferings. Aren't we benevolent? Is that right? Yeah. My. It says the Catholic newspaper Germania hastened to observe the Catholic faith binds the conscience of its followers not to accept this method. In Lutheran circles, too, life is regarded as something that God alone can take. Euthanasia has become a widely discussed word in the Third Reich. No life, still valuable to the state, will be wantonly destroyed. My, my. Ah, there you go again. As long as your life is valuable to the state. And um, anyway, so um, the, uh, the, the, it sounds really nice. The government's going to take care of your health care. But what the government giveth, the government can take it away. Yeah. And so that's where the danger comes in. Let me ask you, but, Bill. Um, let me ask you, Bill. Now, we haven't talked about the Muslims uh, much at all. Is this, uh, what's their attitude about uh, the indigent, you know, the those who are uh, crippled, maimed, or, you know, there are people that embrace different lifestyles. What, so how does all this play into their style of governance as well? All right, so the traditional Sharia Islam Islamic view is that um, people with handicaps are cursed of God. My. And uh, so this is quite different from the Judeo-Christian view where people with handicaps says, you know, don't lead uh, a blind person, you know, down a, a long path and because um, God is watching you and uh, so forth. So, um, uh, so in, in Islam, they have a us and them mentality. So the uh, faithful followers of the way of Allah are uh, ones that are superior. And the coffer infidels uh, are less or <laughs> inferior, and so Allah loves those that are faithful followers, and Allah hates the coffer infidel. Whereas the Judeo-Christian model is God loves everybody; everybody's made in His image. It's the love of God that brings men to repentance. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And um, but here's the quote from C. Ebert Koop in 1977. He said, when the first 273,000 German, aged, infirm, and retarded were killed in gas chambers, there was no outcry from the medical profession, and it was not far from there to Auschwitz. My. And um, anyway, so I wanted to throw that in before we totally got off the healthcare topic. No, but I do have a lot about uh, how Israel influenced America. If you want, I can jump into that. I do. I do. We have. This is a good point of uh, bowing out for this segment and into the next. So, Bill, up next, I want you to talk about uh, the overlay between Israel and the United States of America, uh, things that we can learn in favor of what Israel learned and things that we can steer away from because of the errors that Israel might have taken. We're going to talk a little bit more about this as uh, Come Together San Diego and Bill Federer and I come right back. This is Come Together San Diego, the new live local show on FM 106.1 and AM 1210. K-Praise. More Come Together San Diego is just moments away. Now, back to Come Together San Diego, the new live local show with Cass Taylor. FM 106.1 and AM 1210. K-Praise. And I'm back with Bill Federer, the American Minute. 
and a guy who understands history, not only history of the past, but how it repeats itself into the present and into the future. We've been uh, broadening our tent pegs here as we talk about uh, different topics as they relate not only to the United States, but also to Israel. And I've been really looking forward to this segment for a long time because I really, Bill, I'm really, really interested in the parallels that God has in the United States and uh, in Israel as far as government and as mistakes that uh, are and can be made versus uh, blessings that can be uh, accommodated as well. So can you draw a picture w- with me, uh, Bill Federer, about the the governmental structure and, and religious structure in Israel and how it relates to or does not relate to the United States and where are we going amiss and how can we solve that? Uh, I'd love to. So in the book that I put together called Who is the King in America? I go through how the most powerful government in world history is a king. And then you have the colonial founding of New England. And who founds it? Pastors and their churches. And so these are congregationalist pastors. There's a Roger Williams. He's the uh, pastor uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. He founds the colony with his church. A Reverend John Wheelwright in his church found a community called Exeter, New Hampshire. Reverend John Lothrop in his church found a city called Barnstable, Massachusetts. And Reverend Thomas Hooker in his church found a city called Hartford, Connecticut. Yes. And so this was unique on the planet of pastors and churches founding uh, communities. And so Thomas Hooker has his church members come to him and say, Pastor, can you do a sermon on how to set up the government? And so he gives a sermon, 1638, saying, The foundation of authority is laid firstly in the free consent of the people. This is reflected in our declaration, government from the consent of the governed. Why is this revolutionary? Because over in England, the foundation of authority is the creator giving all the power to the king, and he dispenses it to these lowly subjects. So it's called divine right of king. And so in New England, it's a flip. It's the bottom-up form of government. Now, uh, where did they get these ideas? Uh, From ancient Israel. So these are New England pastors, and they even taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. And one of the pieces of research that I did was our U.S. Constitution was written, but before it could go into effect, it needed to be ratified by nine states. They had eight, and New Hampshire was in line to be the ninth, but it was having a deadlock. So Harvard president... Samuel Langdon gives an address to the New Hampshire ratifying convention titled the Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American States. Wow. Instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, we may substitute the 13 states of the American union and see this application plainly after his address, they vote, they decide to ratify. And since they are the ninth state to do so, our U S constitution went into effect. My, my, Our U.S. Constitution went into effect after the sermon, the Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states. Bill? Now, what was the Republic of the Israelites? It yeah. was the first 400-year period when they came out of Egypt before they got King Saul. Yes. So this is the first time in world history of a nation with millions of people and no king. It worked for 400 years. And if you want, I can get into it. Yeah, but so so you, you you're saying the... The government of Israel was not did not have a king. Obviously, we know that in the early, uh, you know, the early years of Israel. But then there came a time in Israel where Saul abused his privilege 
and you know Israel became in ruins. But then a guy came along named King David, and uh, he kind of changed the rules for Israel governmental structure. Is he he saw that uh, originally there were the two tribes uh, of Judah and Benjamin, and David brought them from Hebron. But David had a heart for all, like you talk about the different churches in America, David had a heart for bringing all the tribes together. So he brought all 12 tribes together, and he created a structure that really had autonomy with the Word of God, but also had autonomy horizontally with other people. And that became one of the strongest kingdoms uh, ever to exist uh, so am I on the right track on that as I look to King David and the 12 tribe mentality? Didn't he kind of change the rules a little bit too? I know you're, you're talking about the early times, uh, hundreds of years before that, but didn't David kind of pick up on that as well? Um, well, uh, I appreciate what you're sharing about David, but as far as America's founders, the colonial pastors, they looked to this first 400-year period called the Hebrew Republic. And it's it, this unique period in world history where you have a nation with millions of people and no king. Yes. Now, it's the book of Judges in the Bible, and we read through it uh, sort of quickly. But if we stop and look through it, it's totally unique on world history. Why? Because since there is no king, everyone's equal. So uh, all the rest of the world ruled by kings. Everyone wants to butter up to the king. In Israel, it did not have a king for 400 years. And the law specifically said there is no respect of persons in judgment, rich or poor, everyone should be treated the same. This is the beginning of the concept of equality on planet Earth. But everyone you see is equal to you. There's no royal family that I want to become friends with. No, everyone's equal. And the law says there's no respect of persons in judgment. It's the beginning of the concept of equality, the Hebrew Republic. Number two, tolerance. Here they were worshiping the one true God, and they never felt compelled to force the stranger amongst them to worship the one true God. Number three, land ownership. Wherever you have a king, you never really own the land. It's always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You do what the king says, he gives you land. You don't do what he says, he kills you and takes the land away. In ancient Israel, this first 400-year period, um, the land was permanently titled to each family. This is the beginning of the concept of private land ownership. If you own land, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called this being blessed. Karl Marx called it being a capitalist, right? Yes. Um, and then Israel was the first nation with no police. Everyone was taught the law. Everyone was responsible to enforce the laws. Like everybody was deputized. We have a little of that today with traffic laws. Somebody weaves in and out of the lane, you take it upon yourself to honk the horn. Yes. And maybe a mom watching a bunch of neighborhood kids, she has no problem correcting somebody else's kid. In the Hebrew Republic, everybody corrected everybody else. Uh, and then ancient Israel had no standing army. So before King Saul, there was no standing army. Every single man in Israel was in the militia and armed with a sword upon their thigh. And they were ready at a moment's notice to defend their family and their community. My. Um, Ancient Israel had no prisons. Remember in Egypt, Joseph was in prison for several years. In, in this Hebrew Republic, when a crime was committed, you got the elders of the city together, and you had the trial immediately. And then, of course, there was a city of refuge that you could run away to to await a trial. And ancient Israel had a bureaucracy-free welfare system. What's that? Yes. 
Well, in Egypt, people were selling their souls to the Pharaoh for a bag of grain. In ancient Israel, when somebody harvested their field, they left the gleanings, the corners, for the poor people to pick through. This way, the poor were taken care of without some political leader collecting everything and doling it back out as favors to those that can help, help them stay in power. And Israel had a system of honesty. God hates unjust weights and measures became the basis for commerce. And ancient Israel got to choose their own leaders of their different tribes. So Moses spake unto the children of Israel, how can I alone bear your burden? Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes, and I'll make them rulers over you. Yes. This was an election process. Anybody could be raised up in the leadership. Gideon, here's Deborah, a woman. She becomes a national leader, not because she's related to royalty. She knows the law. She's honest. The reputation spreads. She sits under a tree. People make their way all the way across the country for her to hear their case. And so Harvard President Samuel Langdon says the Israelites may be considered as a pattern to the world in all ages of government on Republican principles, from abject slavery, a mere mob, to a well-regulated nation under laws far superior to what any other nation could boast. Yes. Bill, you, you, and then, you, you, you mentioned a yeah. phrase I want to deal with in the next segment. You mentioned uh, one of the things that uh, Israel had that was revolutionary was they had cities of refuge. Of course, in the United States, that term is being bantered about, but it's the definition of cities of refuge in the United States, uh, are, are di- the definition is different from the, the intent behind cities of refuge in Israel. I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that because, you know, every time I hear, you know, the United States different cities are cities of refuge, you know, from a guy who loves the word, I go, that phrase is really an appealing phrase, but the abuse of that phrases where we Americans get into trouble. Can we visit that in the next segment, Bill? Sure. Okay. Cities of refuge, good, bad, uh, from Israel's perspective, how did it work? And from America's perspective, cities of refuge, how is that not working? (laughs) We're going to talk more about that when Bill Fetter and I come right back. You're listening to Come Together San Diego, the new live local show on FM 106.1 and AM 1210. K-Praise. Don't just listen to it. Be a part of it at 866-577-2473. You're just moments away from more Come Together San Diego on K-Praise. Now, more of Come Together San Diego on K-Praise. Here's Cass Taylor. Well, we are addressing a fascinating topic. You know, one of the things that I uh, pay close attention to is how the Bible directs a person to live their life, Old Testament and New Testament. And I try to draw parallels between that and the things that are going on today. And Bill Federer, my co-host for this entire two hours, I want to talk a little bit about something from your perspective. There's a phrase that's battered around in the United States as being, you know, the liberal people love this idea and the conservatives hate this idea. It's called cities of refuge. And you mentioned about cities of refuge in the Old Testament, and that was in Joshua around chapter 20, where where people, they needed to go someplace until judgment was properly uh, surveilled upon them. And if they didn't hang out in a place where it's protected, they could get snuck up on and killed so God allowed for or provided for cities of refuge throughout Israel to protect those people. So how is that different or what's the our problem in the United States where we uh, 
kind of intermittently grab this city or this city over here, and we call it cities of refuge. How do those terms differ between biblical intent and uh, human humanism, Bill? So the uh, Israel city of refuge was when you accidentally killed somebody. Maybe you're chopping wood in the woods and the axe head flies off and kills them. And the family member thinks that it might be murder. And so you, uh, again, there are no police in ancient Israel. Uh, And so you would run to the city of refuge and you would wait there until you could get a fair trial. And which were, uh, those were, those were the ju- judges of those days, were they not the judges? Right, but the elders of every city yes. were the judge for their city, although the, some would get a, gain a reputation of being uh, extra fair, and people would uh, make their way um, to go to them like, like Deborah. Yes. Um, but it was very limited. It was just for capital murder cases. And um, it wasn't uh, bringing in strangers who were not Israelites into Israel and saying they get to colonize uh, these different cities, um, you know. So So you're uh, saying the cities of refuge were for Israelites to protect them uh, and allow them to have justice metered out upon them. But you're saying the cities of refuge today, you know, you've got areas and cities within uh, California and other places that are proclaimed cities of refuge has very little to do with that. It has everything to do with bringing in illegal aliens and immigrants and bring them into these areas where they're protected. That's completely in violation of the original intent behind city of refuge. Would you like to declare that a little bit more? Right. So, so the current model, uh, if you actually uh, study it out, you bring in a whole lot of uh, people that are dependent upon uh, government um, and you bring them into cities, uh, what happens? Well, one is uh, there tends to be an increase in crime. And then what happens? Well, people who don't feel safe any longer move out. And a lot of the people that move out are ones with families and those that have the financial means to be able to move out And so these tend to be, in many cases, Republicans. And so who is left in the city? Well, more people that are dependent on government handouts and entitlements who tend to be more Democratic. And so you have this situation, if crime goes up in the cities, the Democrat Party then effectively gets a monopoly on the city politics. And in most states, whoever wins the big city will end up winning the entire state. Whoever wins the state gets all the electoral votes for the state. And the president is elected by electoral votes. Yes. And so you have a little domino effect here. You bring in an element that, uh, along with other things, are more people dependent on government handouts, and they end up being more Democrat. And then the Democrats win the city politics and then they win the state politics and then they get the electoral vote for the state and then they can elect the next president. My, 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 my listening friend, I hope hope you're seeing the truth. This pattern goes all the way back to um, Lyndon Johnson. He's the one who changed the immigration quotas in 1965. Explain that a little bit more, Bill. So prior to 1965, most immigrants came from Europe 
and they uh, had a social stigma about receiving a handout. It was considered a failure. And so uh, there were cases in Appalachia where uh, during the Depression, the government wanted to give them money. They wouldn't take it. They finally said, okay, if you give us a cabbage, we'll give you money. And so they would dig a hole in the back of the you know, place and throw all the cabbages in there. But the people literally would not take a free handout um, because of this social stigma. Uh, but so, the, so prior to 1965, most immigrants came from Europe. And they would work hard, pool their money, and then they would vote for candidates who would take away as little as possible from their hard-earned wealth. Well, Lyndon Johnson and Teddy Kennedy noticed that immigrants from very poor countries, they were so poor, they had no social stigma about receiving a handout. Uh, And then once you get people to take a handout, a dynamic begins. You tend to want to keep the handout coming. Yes. And so if you play this scenario in your mind, If you were receiving a $1,000 check in the mail every week from someone you didn't know, week after week, $1,000, $1,000, $1,000, after a few years of this, would you wake up one day and ask yourself, who is sending me this $1,000 check every week? I'm going to find out who they are and vote them out of office. (laughs) Would would anybody do that? No, they wouldn't. I'd even say I got a couple more bills to pay, you know. (laughs) And so once you get people to receive free money from you, you have a very strong motivation for them to continue to keep you in office. Yes. Yes. And so this is called the Lyndon Johnson Great Society Welfare State. My money. And he put it in place, and it uh, has been in place since the 1960s. How, how do you how do you curtail that? I mean, how how do you change the mentality on something like that? Is it sounds like it's so insipid, it's so uh, in, in, involved in the, the creating a system that people are dependent on or codependent on. How do you get that you know, get people out of that and into a true uh, democracy republic? You know d- that everybody's prov- you know providing their own way. Every parent has to go through that exact thing. So you have a child and they are living in your house and you're paying <laughs> them. But if there isn't any uh, firmness, uh, they will be 30 or 40 years old and still at the house. And still, uh, sometimes they need a, a push. But every parent is faced with this, yes. this decision. When do I, um, you know, when, you know, I was going online and there was one of these websites where it was uh Torah online and they were teaching the Torah and they were teaching words in, in Hebrew and, and they were saying one of these words uh, meant uh, like for motherly love and it meant uh, love but it also meant to stop loving My. and they, they said how can the same word mean the same and they said well here you have a mother bird and she brings worms to the little nest but once the bird is big enough the mother bird wants the bird to learn how to fly and it actually pushes the bird out of the nest and so you you have to realize that the the two angles of love. Yes. And not only does every parent and family have to learn this, every community has to learn this. Now, when the church is involved giving to the poor, the church has this motivation to want this person to get on their two feet. When you have po- politicians that are involved in this, they, not all of them, but a, a, a percentage of them, want that the constituency to stay in existence so they can continue to get their votes and they can continue to justify the existence of their department uh, to meet the needs of the poor. Because if the poor were no longer poor, then they wouldn't 
have a job. Wow. So uh, that's why I said just because something needs to be done, it's not the government's job to do it. Yes. Bill, uh, it's the church's job and the individual's jobs. Yes. You know, when you mentioned that, there are a couple things that I had challenges with, and I think you've answered them. One of the things that, you know, I, I deal with in Scripture is there's a Scripture in the book of Acts that uh, talks about, um, and they all believed that we're t- together in uh, Acts, oh, let's see what it is, Acts uh, 2, verse 14, uh, and they they all came together, all the believers, and they had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and their goods, and they parted them so that every person had what he or she needed. And you know, if you look at that, just in the in the in the bare bones of that, that sounds like a very, very, very clear socialism. But what you just said there is really has to play, play into this. You, you say, you know, there's a level of accountability that each individual has to have. And you talked about it in uh, cities of refuge, but you also this is also has to be the case here, doesn't it? Where in 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 the scripture it, it says that uh, everybody had everything in common and they shared everything that they needed, so nobody had lack and nobody had overabundant. That sound overabundance. That sounds like a socialism concept, but the piece of the equation that uh, those who are uh, promoting socialism don't say is this was tied to. Uh, Christian community. This was tied to the church. This was tied to the family. This was tied to the individual believer. And uh, we forget that because we go, okay, well, everybody needs to have equal, you know, uh, top down, bottom up uh, socialism. Basically, everybody shares their their amount of money uh, with everybody else. That's not what it means, is it? Right. So it's the difference between the word voluntarily, voluntary (laughs) and involuntary. So the, the the Christians voluntarily gave to others to meet their needs. Yes. Socialism is a government agent comes and takes from you, whether you want to give it or not, they take it from you, which is the definition of theft. Oh my. And then they give it and it, they're not giving their money. They're giving your money and they're giving it what in return for favors. Yes. They're return, getting it in return for votes, for financial support, for, or for um, a lot of times they'll give money to groups that'll funnel the money back into their campaign. We right. see this with other countries where they'll give billions of dollars to, let's say, the Ukraine, and then the Ukraine funnels it back into the pockets of the politicians or their son. Right. Uh, but yes. it's money that's funneled through Haiti into maybe the Clinton Foundation. Oh my. And so whenever you get the government involved in giving out stuff, Every program is run by people, and people have a selfish motive, yes. and they're going to be tempted to want to benefit from it. Yes. Now, I wanted to point out one, one more thing about ancient Israel. Okay. Ancient Israel was the first nation that could read. So did you know in Egypt, only 1% of Egypt could read? Reading and writing was the scribes' secret knowledge. They had 3,000 hieroglyphs. They kept them complicated on purpose as job security, and it was just the communication of the deep state. It was uh-huh. only the pharaohs and the ruling class could read. Sumeria had 1,500 cuneiform characters. It was only for kings and scribes. Mm-hmm. Writing started as an accounting method for kings to count everything that they owned, right? Originally in China, it was knots and ropes, and then an abacus with rods and beads, and then they made little markings and, and clay tokens. It turned into cuneiform. When Moses comes down the mountain, he does not just have the law. 
He has the law in a 22-character alphabet. My, my, yes. 1,500 characters or 3,000 characters. And it wasn't just for the elites. Everybody learned how to read. And so Israel was the first nation with an entirely literate populace. Why? Because the people were the king. The people were in charge. And each individual person was accountable to God. And so this is the, the, the conclusion of that thought. So imagine a spectrum of power. One side's total government. The other side's no government. Total government, you get a king. He rules through fear. You do what he says or he kills you. The other side is no government. No government would be anarchy. Yes. Unless each person is taught the law. It's like everybody downloads a behavioral app on their iPhone. Instead of a GPS app telling you where to turn, it tells you how to act. In real time, right? My, yes. Be nice to that person. Don't hit that person and don't yell. And, and the Levites were the computer geeks that help you to <laughs> download the app. My, my. Go to this app store here, Google Play, press this button, line up online, precept to one precept. And so everybody had their own copy of the law that they had memorized, that they had been taught since they were a child. But wait a second. Why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? Ancient Israel had the key ingredient. There is a God who is watching everyone. He wants you to be fair, and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. So oh, you're about Bill. to steal. Nobody's around, and then you think, uh, no, God somebody's watching. watching. Exactly. Hey, Bill, we're, we've got one. He's going to hold me accountable. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. Create something in your head called a conscience. Yes, yes, yes. If everybody in the, in the country really believes this. You can maintain complete order, order, safety, security. Women can go anywhere without fear with no police. I love it. Bill Federer. Maximum liberty. Yes, yes. We're, we're, we've got a truncated last segment, but that's okay. I want to take this and expand a little bit. You know, we keep broadening our tent pegs, and I wanted to do that. The next segment, the last segment, we're only going to have a, a few minutes in it, but I want you to be thinking about this, Bill, as we come back. I want you to be thinking about what happens when these godly principles are abandoned what happened to Israel and what is happening to the United States of America and what is the prescription for health in the midst of this contrary time. Would you be so kind as to be thinking about that for the next segment, Bill Federer? Yes. Okay. We're going to talk about that when Bill and I come right back. More Come Together San Diego with Kaz Taylor is next. FM 106.1 and AM 1210. K-Praise. Now more of Come Together San Diego, the new live local show on K-Praise. Here's Cass Taylor. And it has been a joy visiting with Bill Federer as my co-host for this entire two hours of Come Together San Diego. We've only got, Bill, about five minutes literally left in this show. So I'm going to ask you to put your summary hat on here. And in the next couple minutes, I want you to summarize uh, the value of embracing godly principles and what happens when you abandon them. We will see this uh, playing out not only in Israel, but also plays out in the United States. And this is Bill Federer's word of wisdom. So uh, in the next couple minutes, Bill, lay it on us. Sure. Well, my uh, website, AmericanMinute.com, has all this information. And I've been talking about a book called Who is the King in America? And ancient Israel, their system worked for 400 years until the priest stopped teaching the law. And Eli, the high priest, the main guy that's supposed to be teaching it, his own sons are sleeping with women in the very tent of meeting where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then you have a story of a Levite 
with a silver graven image in the house of a guy named Micah. And the tribe of Dan comes along and takes the graven image and tells this Levite, hey, come along with us. You can be a priest to a whole tribe. And you read the story scratching your head thinking, what is this Levite doing with a graven image? Isn't that one of the commandments? Shows that Levites were no longer following it, much less teaching the law. Finally, the terrible story of a Levite with a concubine. And the law says the Levites to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with a woman not even married to. And they're traveling, and the house is surrounded by sodomites that bang on the door. The poor girl's raped and dies. And by the time you're grossed out, you read this line, every man did that which was, was right, right in their, their own eyes. eyes. Yes, yes, yes. Why? So, because the priests had stopped teaching them what was right in the Lord's eyes. Yes. They lost their knowledge of the Word. They lost their fear of God. And it turns into this chaos where... Whatever anybody feels like, right? You feel like something today, something tomorrow. The little kids come out of school. They don't know they, whatever they feel like, right? And so it turns into this chaos. And out of that chaos, all the people go to Samuel the prophet, and they say, this self-government system's not, not working anymore. We want to be like all the other countries. We want a king. king. Yes. Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And so they get King Saul, and the one story is very telling. Saul is pouting that his son made a league with David and says, nobody cares about me. And this guy, Doeg the Edomite, says, King, I care. I saw David go to this town. They gave him some bread and the sword of Goliath. Saul says, bring those priests here, the priests from that town. He turns to his men and says, kill them. The men hesitate. And then Doeg the Edomite says, I'll kill him. He kills them all. What just happened? The soldiers had been operating under this old system where each individual is personally accountable to God to follow the law. The law says you need two or more witnesses before you condemn somebody to death. There's only one witness, this Doeg guy. So they're hesitating. This does not compute. I'm accountable to God. Doeg says, King, I'm going to surrender my conscience to you. You tell me to kill, I'll kill. And so what happens is wherever you get kings, they want you to surrender your deeply held religious convictions. They're going to say, I don't care what has been morality for 6,000 years, throw it out immediately. And it, now you have to uh, embrace my sexual morals, whatever comes down. Uh, you have to, you know, decide the life, you know, when life begins and so forth. The government wants to dictate. When I blow my trumpet, says Nebuchadnezzar, you bow to my statue. I don't care if you have a warm feeling in your heart for my statue. You have to surrender your individual views your relationship with God and just embrace the state. And so this is what happened with ancient Israel. And we see this happening today. So we're having these kids go through schools. We've got one minute, Bill. Told there's no right, there's no wrong. Give into your passions and lust. Uh, You can know, you know, abort babies. And and so these kids get trained that they can justify any action. So what's wrong with killing a classmate? They're basically acting out the philosophy they were taught in the schools. Yes. And so in that chaos, what happens is you have a lawless society and everybody's knee-jerk reaction says we need the government to come in and restore order. The government comes in, collects everybody's guns, takes away all your freedoms, and yeah, they'll restore order, but when the dust settles, you yeah. will have transitioned from the people ruling themselves bottom up to a king ruling from the top down. Wow, and there goes and freedom. So Freedom's all gone at that yeah. juncture. Bill Federer. Anyway, it's uh, all in the book, Who is the King in America? And, at uh, at AmericanMinute.com. Yes, yes. Bill Federer, thanks for joining us. I knew we were going to get into some uh, captivating stuff, and i just sorry we don't have 12 hours to do this because you're just getting warmed up. Bill Federer, American Minute, uh, AmericanMinute.com. You can find out more about him uh, by going to his website, and he's a remarkable guy, many books, many newsletters. And, Bill, thanks for joining us. And uh, my listening friend, uh, I, I want you to dig into Scripture, understand God's precepts, and 
embrace the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will set your way straight for being a God lover, and uh, God will bless your actions. My listening friend, God bless you. My, my, my friend, Bill Federer, thank you for spending some time with us. You're a remarkable guy, and uh, we're honored to have you on for both hours. Thank you, Kaz. It's a pleasure. Well, my friends, next week we're going to do more great stuff because we like to not only dig into Scripture, but we like to dig into what God is doing in San Diego as well so we can encourage you to come together, San Diego. Bye now. Thanks for joining Kaz Taylor and his many friends, including you, for Come Together San Diego. Join us again next week as we explore what unity in the body of Christ sounds like within this county and beyond on Come Together San Diego. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell a co-worker, and then let's all come together San Diego next Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. on FM 106.1 and AM 1210. K-Praise.